All right. Um, apologetics and the canon. Apologetics and the canon of Scripture. Uh, when we talk about the canon, just a, a quick word of definition here. When we talk about the canon, we're, the discussion uh, about the canon is normally the discussion of which books are God's word, right? That, that's the question. And, and how do you know? Um, so when we're talking about canonicity, we're talking about issues like how do you know Second Peter is inspired and Second Maccabees isn't, right? And, and that's a question. And, and what we're going to see is that's, a, that's going to be a very challenging question for us uh, from a number of different angles. So we begin here. Canonicity, this question, tends to be a background doctrine for us. It's as heirs of Reformation Christianity. We go about the task of ministry, believing that the Bible is, and this is from one of the most popular uh, American Baptist confessions of faith, the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, the Bible is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. And, and as Baptists, we should say a hearty amen to that. Right? Uh, when challenged about the legitimacy of some element of our faith or practice, we rightly seek to find what the Bible says about it. Right? Someone brings up some issue in theology, and we, our first in, impulse is to say, well, what does the Bible say about it? Right? That's, the, the Bible is the center of everything we do. Our guiding presupposition is that the Bible understood correctly is the final word on any issue. And yet, when we are called upon to defend our insistence that all these books and only these books must be revered and considered authoritative above all others, the answers become more difficult. Right? So if I were to ask you, why do you believe that, that salvation is by faith alone? What would you do? You'd open your Bible, right? You'd go to Romans, you'd go to Galatians, right? And you, you'd show me verses. If I were to ask you, why do you think Galatians belongs in the Bible? What do you do? That's a harder question, isn't it? Okay. Now, uh, well, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll read uh, and then comment. Uh, in recent days, the necessity for defense of the canon has become even more pressing because of attacks from very different perspectives. So we're going to look at two um, opposing views that are both attacking us about our certainty about the canon. Okay? How do you know these books are the right books? First, Roman Catholic apologists, on the one hand, insist that the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, scripture alone is what that means, has a profound flaw. Okay. Now, as, as, as Protestants, as heirs of the Reformation, we are committed to sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our final authority for faith and practice. Right? Uh, Protestants contend that scripture is the only standard for faith and practice, and yet scripture itself does not provide a list of those books that are to be considered scripture, unless you count the table of contents, and most of us would say that's not inspired. Right? Um, so, so, so this is the question. The Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice. How do you know which books belong in the Bible? Well, the Bible itself doesn't tell us that. Right? The Bible doesn't say, here are the 66 books of the Bible. And like I said, unless the table of contents is inspired. And obviously I say that tongue-in-cheek. The only reasonable alternative, the Catholic insists, is that the church more specifically the Roman Church, 
is itself the ultimate basis for authority. You see how they make that transition, right? We say, what is the ultimate authority? What do we say? The Bible, right? The Bible is our, our final authority. And, and the Catholic says, well, how do you know that's really the Bible? And we go, uh, and the Catholic says, see, you need the church to tell you what the Bible is. You're following so far? Tracking? All right. Uh, the church, by means of its various councils, has the authority to declare which books have canonical status and which do not. Again, that's Roman Catholic teaching. So I quote, quote from the Roman Catholic Catechism, which... If, as, as a non-Catholic, if you have Catholic friends and you're interested in sharing the gospel with them, go to Barnes & Noble or go on Amazon and get a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Paperback, it'll cost you eight bucks. It's a great eight bucks to spend if you're doing Roman Catholic evangelism because um, most Catholics don't understand Catholic doctrine law. And, and, and if you can go into the discussion knowing what the church teaches, um, that, that, that's a good thing, to be able to show, okay, look at this paragraph here. This is what your church believes. Um, and and it's, right, it's right there, literally in black and white. It's, it's a very good investment of, of uh, very few dollars. So, from the Catechism, uh, paragraph 120 there. It was by the apostolic tradition that the church discerned which writings are to be included in the list of the sacred books. The complete list is called the Canon of Scripture. The significance of Catholic teaching at this point is rooted in a Catholic understanding of the term tradition, and that's capitalized. So, again, quoting from the Catechism, as a result, the Church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Okay? So you, you've heard it said, you know, Baptists will say, Catholics think that scripture and tradition are on the same level. This is why. Do you see, this is an exact quote from the, the, the Catholic Catechism. And, and the reason that the Catholic believes that tradition has to be at the same level as scripture is that I wouldn't know what scripture is without tradition. So, so let's, let's put it in real practical terms. What the Catholic Church believes is something like this. The, the apostles live, they write writings, um, they have people that they teach, right? They pass, did, did Paul teach anything about doctrine that he didn't write down? You think Paul, you think Paul taught something in, about doctrine that he didn't write down? Probably. Yeah, probably, right? What the Catholic Church teaches is that those sorts of things are part of the tradition and that they're handed down orally. Okay? And, and among the things that are handed down orally are the books that are considered authoritative. So what the Catholic Church looks at, they look at themselves as a preserver of an oral tradition that goes back to the apostles that is as authoritative, it's, it's like scripture but not written. That's, that's, how the, that's how oral tradition is considered from the perspective of Roman Catholicism. 
While the Catechism of the Roman Church professes to hold tradition and scripture as equal voices of authority, the fact that the very content of scripture is governed by tradition indicates that tradition is actually the ultimate authority. Does that make sense? So, so they're saying it's equal, but the reality is we know what Scripture is by what? Tradition. So tradition actually trumps Scripture. Okay. Uh, so again here, this is, this is from um, the, Roman, uh, the, the Catholic Encyclopedia, which is available online, this next extended quote here. It says, even those Catholic theologians who defend apostolicity, wonderful little word there, is a test for the inspiration of the New Testament. All right, let me untangle this a bit. Um, we're going to talk about how we know a book is inspired. One of the tests is the test of apostolicity. In other words, what? Was it written by an apostle? Okay, makes sense. Um, so the Catholic encyclopedia here is saying there are some Catholics that do appeal to apostolicity as a test. Okay. Even those ones, though, admit that it is not exclusive. In other words, it doesn't exclude another criterion, that is, Catholic tradition, as manifested in the universal reception of compositions as divinely inspired, or the ordinary teaching of the Church, or the infallible pronouncements of ecumenical councils. This external guarantee, the, the guarantee that we have by means of councils, by pronouncements of the Church, is the sufficient, universal, and ordinary proof of inspiration. How do I know Galatians is inspired? Ask the, we ask the Catholic, how do you know Galatians is inspired? And his answer is what? The church says so. The church says so. Okay. Um, the unique quality of the sacred books is revealed dogma. Moreover, by its very, uh, by its very nature, Inspiration eludes human observation and is not self-evident, being essential, essentially super-physical and supernatural. I think that's largely true. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Its sole absolute criterion, therefore, is the holy inspiring spirit witnessing it decisively to itself, not in the subjective experience of individual souls, as Calvin maintained, neither in the doctrinal and spiritual tenor of holy writ itself, according to Luther, but through the constituted organ and custodian of its revelations, the Church. All other evidences fall short of the certainty and finality necessary to compel the absolute assent of faith. Right. Do you get what Rome is saying to us? Rome is saying to us, you know, you're all certain about the Bible, you can't have that kind of certainty about the Church. The Church has to be the one to tell you what the Bible is. Because... If I were to ask you why Galatians and not, you know, the book of Enoch, you don't have a good answer for that. And in fact, what they're going to go on and say is, your answer to that is really kind of backdoor Catholic, whether you want to admit it or not. You have those books because the church has given them to you. Okay, that's powerful, right? This should be a little, I, I, hopefully I'm going to get, we're going to get to answers, but I want you to feel unsettled at the beginning. While committed Protestants rightly recoil from such a line of argument, the certainty of Rome's claims provide, for many people, a very appealing level of security. Right? Isn't that the appeal of it? They're telling you what it is. And so, and so that's, that's very comforting. 
And once one is willing to grant that the authority of the canon is established by its ratification by the church, many of the other Catholic distinctives become easier to accept. As a case in point, the notion that Rome established the canon played a major role in Frank Beckwith's revision to the Roman Church, reversion, I'm sorry, to the Roman Church. So, this guy, Frank Beckwith, um, was president of the ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, which is a, a, a very significant evangelical study group. Um, and he resigned the presidency of the ETS and became a Roman Catholic, converted back to the Roman Catholicism of his childhood. Okay? And here's a quote from him. He says, Much of what evangelicals think of the odd beliefs of Catholics have their deep roots in Christian history. This, of course, may not convince a Protestant that these views are correct, but what it will do is help the Protestant to appreciate that the very same Christians that deliberated over the content of the biblical canon also believed in the real presence, purgatory, intercession of the saints, and indulgences. That's a compelling sort of argument, right? Back with this telling us, hey, listen, you trusted these guys that they got the Bible right. Shouldn't you also trust them about praying to Mary? So that's the Roman Catholic challenge. Well, while the Catholics are critical of our position for its lack of certainty, in other words, you guys shouldn't be so certain, right? a number of skeptics have attacked on another front, asserting that any meaningful notion of the canon is far too certain and even ridiculously naive. For instance, I've mentioned this a couple times already in the class. The most lasting apologetic challenge of the Da Vinci Code the, the book and the movie, um, will not be the allegation that Christ married and had a child. Again, I, I, I've never had an opportunity, I've never been talking to an unbeliever and brought up Christianity and they go, well, you know, I would believe, except I think that Jesus got married and had a child. It's just, that's, that's so outlandish of a position that, that no one takes that seriously. Okay? What, what I think is taken seriously, uh, the book had a distinctly conspiracy, oh, I'm sorry, but the questions it raised about the origins of the New Testament canon, I say here, that book had a distinctly conspiratorial tone, alleging that Constantine and the Council of Nicaea selected and edited works for the canon that would advance their ecclesiastical and socio-political goals. The fact that academic study of the Gospel of Judas made national headlines is evidence of at least some skepticism about the trustworthiness of the traditional canonical list at the popular level. Okay, I mean, just just very briefly, I don't want to get into it, but um, what what Dan Brown alleged in the Da Vinci Code is that there were uh, dozens, at least, you know, ten, uh, the many many other gospels. Right? We have our four. Um, Brown says there were there were a number of other gospels, and they told the story of Jesus as well, but their story of Jesus was different than the story of Jesus that has come to us in the accepted canonical Gospels. Um, and, and, you know, to play Brown's uh, position a bit, you know, the, the Jesus that we find in these Gnostic Gospels, okay, you'll hear that terminology, the Gnostic Gospels, uh, that Jesus was, was really, shockingly, a nicer sort of Jesus, who was, you know, kind of a feminist and, and um, he was shockingly relevant to the 21st century. Go figure. Uh, help sell books. <laughs> anyway, um, 
So one of these uh, alleged Gnostic Gospels is the Gospel of Judas, and there are fragments of this document that that were found. These fragments were found, and they actually made they actually made national news. Um, honestly, the fact that an obscure manuscript of a non-canonical gospel made national news says something about the impact that Dan Brown's book had. The same accusations, same sorts of accusations um, uh, against the canon made by the Da Vinci Code are endorsed by more serious Bible critics like Bart Ehrman. Um, Ehrman, I note here, uh, footnote 7, is the author of Misquoting Jesus. Uh, which argues from textual criticism that the Bible has changed to fit the theological framework of the early church. Ehrman's an interesting story. Ehrman went to um, Wheaton, was an evangelical, evangelical scholar, and then went from Wheaton, I believe, to Harvard, Princeton, something like that, um, and over the course of his study lost his faith. Um, decided that the evidence of the text could no longer support his evangelical faith and, and abandon the faith. And he now writes books very critical of Christianity. Um, I, I do note here, I, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Ehrman at all. His, misquoting Jesus has been a bestseller, um, which again is very... These are the sort of books that are odd as bestsellers. You don't expect a book on, on New Testament textual criticism to be a bestseller. Um, but it, it, it's giving a popular message, a message that people want to hear, right? Remember what we've said all, all semester long, the unbeliever hates God, and he is trying to suppress the truth by means of his unrighteousness. And what Ehrman is doing is handing the unbeliever tools for suppressing the truth. Okay. So Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, has be actually become a bestseller. I do note there in footnote 9 uh, a response. Now, it's a, it's a technical sort of response, um, but it's at least worth knowing that it's there. If you come across Ehrman's book, Dan Wallace is a professor of Greek at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, his, his Greek grammar is pretty much the, the grammar that's used in seminaries today. Detroit Seminary uses Dan Wallace's Greek grammar. Uh, the guy knows more Greek than uh, some Greeks. You know, that it's just, his, his, um, he's amazing as a Greek scholar. Uh, and frankly, I think in that, in that review of Ehrman's book, he blows Ehrman out of the water. So it's just, uh, it's worth knowing that it's there. All right, I say here. Uh, Bart Ehrman, the new atheist, Okay, I've mentioned Christopher Hitchens. He's the one that debated Dan Wilson in that movie. Uh, Richard Dawkins wrote The God Delusion, Sam Harris, others. These kind of arguments have also filtered down to the popular level. Internet atheists of various sorts make gratuitous assumptions that the Bible is wholly unreliable. And, and, and just on a popular level, you'll hear people say, how can you trust the Bible? It's been translated so many times, right? You've heard arguments like this. Now, now, frankly, when people, when if anyone ever says, "How can you trust the Bible? It's been translated so many times," that's an immediate clue they have no clue what they're talking about whatsoever. Okay, uh, because translation doesn't make something unreliable. Um, translation can be hard work, but the reality is, you can translate something from one language to another and keep its meaning. Um, the fact that something's been translated. 
the, the reality is we have the text that Paul wrote down. And, and that people don't realize. Most people, when they talk about translation and the unreliable, they, they, they just don't know the facts. They don't know the facts of it. So, all right. Again, they are not suggesting, not merely suggesting that the Bible contains errors, which we would expect them to say, but that the very collection of books that make up the Bible has no sound foundation. The sort of conspiratorial tone that characterizes Dan Brown's fiction is not uncommon in real-world argumentation, even from those who should know better. I think Ehrman should know better, frankly. The necessity. So, do we get our two poles here? The Catholic says what? How can you be so sure without the church? The, the atheist says, you're way too sure. Right? The, 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 um, the Catholic says, you shouldn't be so sure based on your worldview. The, the atheist says, you're way too sure. You've got no basis for saying that. The necessity of a thoroughly considered defense of the canon becomes more apparent when the inquirer is not an arrogant challenger of the faith, but rather a confused congregant who is seeking answers, especially after he has encountered some of these challenges to the authenticity of the canon. Based solely on anecdotal evidence, I anticipate that those of us in Christian service will be facing questions about the authority of the canon with increasing frequency, especially from those who have come to our churches without having previous background in Christianity. Um, I, I have experience with this at IBC. I had students who, it, it, in their most honest moments, they just really wondered, how can we trust the Bible? Right? And, that's, and that's a fair question. It's not a question that's easy to ask a Christian, especially when you're, you know, if, I'm, if I claim to be a Christian, you claim to be a Christian. It doesn't just seem to be a Christian thing for me to say, you know what I'm really wondering? The Bible. I don't know what, what to think about, right? That just doesn't seem like the sort of thing we're allowed to say. And so I think people have doubts about the authority of the Bible that are unvoiced. And those sorts of doubts, if the Bible is as important as we think it is, if someone has serious doubts about what the Bible is, do you think that's going to have impact on their Christian walk? And my answer, I think, is, is obviously yes. Uh, let's skip over the, the next couple paragraphs here. Let's go to number one. The traditional grounds for the establishment of the canon. All right, so here's the question. How, how have we as Protestants traditionally argued for the, the authority of the canon? Uh, the broad contours of the history of the acceptance of the canon are, are well known. Basically, by the 3rd and 4th century, if you skip down to the end of that paragraph, by the early 4th century, it was agreed to exclude them. The three criteria which the fathers are known to have applied were the origin in the apostolic circle, continuous use, and orthodoxy. Um, and you can, you can read through more of this if, you, if you're interested, but if we read it all, we will warn out of time. We've already considered the Romanist account of the history of the canon. In that version of the events, the reasons for choosing one book over another are, for believers today, practically irrelevant. Right? All that matters is that the church, through its councils, made the decisions that it did. The Protestant reformers, however, certainly could not accept that point of view. 
For if the Bible were accepted purely on the authority of the Roman Church, it does seem to fall that the other practices of the Roman Church should be accepted as well. Having considered a, a number of works on the defense of the canon, I would suggest that the typical non-Catholic grounds for establishing the limits of the canon fall into four categories. First, the consent of the Church, taken as the ex general acceptance by God's people rather than as declarations of church councils. You see the difference here? So how do I know that Galatians is the word of God? Well, if you look at the early church, you see that um, Galatians was a book that throughout every place that Christianity went, believers accepted that book as, as scripture. Okay. Now, that doesn't settle the case, but, but that's one evidence, right? So you, you, did, you did have, in the, in the first 300 years of the church, in this particular region of the Roman Empire, the, a book called The Shepherd by a guy named Hermas, The Shepherd of Hermas. This, this region of the Roman Empire, the churches there tended to accept the shepherd as scripture. Okay? And this section over here accepted First Clement as scripture. Okay? But one of the criteria for uh, canonicity is that Christians everywhere have accepted this as scripture. Okay? Again, it doesn't settle it, but it's one of the indications that, that in, in, as we look at how God leads his church in his providence, we would look at and say, this is evidence. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get off on this, but uh, one one uh, important question is: uh, I know there wasn't like a day on which the Roman Catholic Church started, right? But basically, basically the the uh, Bishop of Rome kind of became the big cheese win. It's a huge, difficult question. Three um, hundred, late three hundred. Yeah, probably around that time. That's that's probably a fair assumption. Okay. Yeah. So so when you're talking about councils and their and their and their and their arguments and their proceedings and their and their conclusions, especially regarding canonicity, what you're saying is we would want to go with basically those church councils that were before. Before the late fourth century, I think I think there's a lot in those that that we would accept, but we have to make the point that we don't accept them because they're councils. Do you see the difference? In other words, when uh, Nicaea puts forth the, the Nicene Creed and the stat and and, and uh, argues for the full deity of Christ, yeah. okay, we affirm that. We think they're right. Uh, but but ultimately, we affirm Nicaea. Why? Because we think it accurately states what the Bible says. Okay? I don't affirm what Nicaea said because Nicaea said it. Okay. Um, well, I'm, tr Maybe I'm missing what you're trying to get across. It seems like what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get or what I'm trying to perceive here is that is that is that you're getting at the thing is is that that um, church councils before the ascendancy of the bishop of Rome are more to be trusted on I, this than those afterwards. 
I think that's I think that's a a fair assessment of the conclusion that I come to. Oh, okay. Maybe yeah. I'm jumping ahead, or maybe. No, no. I I think that's a, that's a, a fair statement. But what I I want to say, okay, yes, the the pre-Roman Catholic Church councils, I am largely in agreement with. Okay. But I don't take those positions because the councils tell me to. Oh, you're getting to it. So it's 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 a matter of ultimate authority there. I think I think they state things that conform to Scripture. In God's good providence, He led His church into truth. Um, but I would all I would argue that in God's providence, uh, large segments of the church were also led into error, as as church history unfolds. Um, second, so our first is is this book used through where, where Christians are? Do they use this book? Second. The sacred character of the text. Okay. Now we're going to notice this one's a bit, uh, a bit subjective in terms of how we judge it, but um, clearly some texts just can't be scripture, right? There's certain things you read and they're just ridiculous. Okay. Um, uh, for for whatever reason. Um, uh, one of the primary things that, that would come up here, and this is probably good to make note of, I, I should have probably put this in here, but, but uh, orthodoxy, agreement with other scriptures, would be one major criteria here. Um, we accept this book at, or probably even more, more accurate, we reject this book from being canonical because if we accepted this book, it would contradict another book that we already accept as scripture. Does that make sense? What, one of the ways of ruling out a book is if it contradicts Scripture. Um, and, and particularly for the New Testament church, they would, they would rule out any book that would contradict the Old Testament, which was their Scripture. Yeah? I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to get us off course here, but, but so there would be some probably some wrangling over the book of James. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Even even up to, I mean, and, and you'll see this with Catholics again. Uh, Catholics uh, point out that Luther had some had some issues with the book of James. Yeah. Um, Luther was, and, and, and different uh, interpreters of Luther uh, disagree as to the degree to which Luther had problems with, with James. Some were convinced James just wanted to toss it out on its ear, uh, others others say that Luther had a bit more nuanced position than that. But yeah, that, that would be a, a great example of it. Exactly. Uh, third, various evidential considerations. Primarily those topics covered in introduction. Okay. Um, book, book recommendation. Uh, there's a, a book on New Testament introduction written by three authors. Uh, D.A. Carson... Douglas Moo, spelled exactly how you'd think, M-O-O, and Leon Morris. New Testament introduction. When we talk about introduction and we're talking about a book of the Bible, that's a specific topic. Okay, uh, Introduction has to do with issues of authorship. So, uh, <clears throat> the book of John. Uh, who... In the, in the text of the book of John, who claims to have written John? And the answer is? 
Nobody. There is no claim of authorship in the book of John. So, how do we know that John wrote it? And, and, and even if we decide that John wrote it, what's the follow-up question? Which John? Right? There are a number of guys named John associated with the early church. Um, questions of introduction seek to answer questions, or, or uh, books on introduction. Go through every book of the New Testament and, and, and set forth the case for the authorship, the date, when was this book written, to whom was this book written, um, and, 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 and sometimes those are significant in terms of affecting our interpretation of those books. Right? So, New Testament introduction. Those things are helpful for establishing the authority of the canon. Okay? Um, you know, we, we start finding that uh, the, the book of uh, Galatians, for instance, uh, it one, probably one of the very first books that Paul wrote is, is quoted by other church fathers very, very early in church history. Okay? Well, that indicates, you know, people are quoting, if we have manuscripts where people are quoting Galatians in the 2nd century, the 3rd century, something like that, it shows that Galatians had to have been written before that. Right? This, this is good and useful stuff. For, for those who say, oh, the Bible was just made up over time or whatever. No, look, this guy here in Macedonia clearly knew about the book of Galatians. Okay? So that's, that, that's helpful evidence for establishing the canon. You know? So we know that Galatians wasn't written in 300 AD by some guy claiming to be Paul. Right? It, it just can't be that way. The evidence doesn't bear it out. Right? And fourth, the internal testimony of the Spirit. The unique contribution of Calvin to the discussion of the canon is his insistence that the primary means by which the Christian is assured of the validity of God's word is the internal witness of the Spirit to his own work. Okay. Arguing for the necessity of the internal testimony, Calvin articulated this point in his inimitable manner. All right, let me, let me set this up a bit. Remember a couple paragraphs ago, we read an excerpt from the Catholic Encyclopedia, and it said, here are deficient ways of proving the canon. And it mentioned Luther, who appealed to the sacred character of the text, and Calvin with the internal testimony of the Spirit. Okay? Internal testimony is the Spirit's supernatural work assuring the Christian that what I'm reading is, in fact, the Word of God. Okay. Um, that the Spirit inspired the Bible, and as we read it, the Spirit uh, illumines us. Okay. And, and, and just, uh, just, just a brief aside, if we want to discuss this one uh, anymore, we'll discuss it after class. Illumination, is, as I understand it, is not about primarily the meaning of the text. Okay? In other words, if I'm reading my Bible and I don't understand what a passage says, or for instance, I'm reading Acts and it says, and Paul left Pergamum and went to, you know, whatever, and I go, man, I don't know where Pergamum is. The correct answer then is not to pray that I would know where Pergamum is. Right? What is the correct answer? 
Go to Unger's Bible Dictionary. Get it. Get out of Bible Atlas. Right? Look it up. Right? If I don't understand, man, the grammar of this passage, I just get lost. I, you know, Paul has written one of his 400-word sentences here. I don't know how to interpret this. What is the correct thing to do? Look at another version. Get a commentary, right? You study. Let me ask you a question. Can an unbeliever understand the meaning of the Bible? Is the unbeliever's problem with John 3.16 that he just doesn't get what it means? No. In, in fact, some, and, and, and I love this illustration, some of the very best interpreters of the Old Testament are not believers. Who would be a very good interpreter of the Old Testament that's not a believer? What kind of person would be well-equipped? Jewish. Jewish people, right? They, they don't believe that Jesus is Messiah, but they're very well equipped to understand the Old Testament. Why? They know the language. They know the culture. Right? Now, often they'll come to a passage and, and, and I think they will intentionally distort it away from Christ. But the reality is the unbeliever's problem is not one of knowledge at this point. What I have that the unbeliever doesn't have is not new revelation. You know, it's not that the Spirit helps me, whispers in my ear the meaning of the text. Okay? What I have that the unbeliever doesn't have. Um, uh, Paul in, in, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it is, maybe 2 Corinthians, talks about welcoming the Word of God. Okay, that's something that I do that the unbeliever doesn't do. Or I'm going to mention this later on, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll just briefly hit it right now. In the book of Thessalonians, Paul thanks God that the Thessalonians didn't receive his words as the words of men, but as they are in truth, what? The word of, the God. Word of God. Now, I want you to think of the significance of that. If you hear from someone the word of God, what, what ought that mean to you? Well, but, but, I mean, what, what is the weight of that? That if this is the Word of God, it is absolutely authoritative. You don't get to debate with that. Right? It's the Word of God. There's, there is no arguing. There is no disputing with that. You submit to that. Okay? That, is, that is a supernatural work of the Spirit. That, in, that is, it's an enabling me to welcome and submit to the Word of God. Part of that work is the recognition that this is, in fact, the Word of God, right? The Thessalonians didn't receive it merely as the... Were there some that received Paul's words merely as the words of men? Absolutely. Receiving Paul's words as the Word of God, that's illumined. Okay? So, um, the internal testimony then is, is, I think, an aspect of illumination. So this is this is Calvin, and, and Calvin um, has has a bit of an edge to his writing, and I appreciate it. He says, "Yet they who strive to build up firm faith in Scripture through disputation, in other words, through argument. So we're trying to build up firm faith in Scripture. That's what we're doing here right now. 
If we were to do it through argument, Calvin says, we're doing it backwards. For my part, and this is, this, Calvin gets all modest here, but he, it, it, I think it's kind of a false modesty. Although I do not excel, either in great dexterity or eloquence, if I were struggling against the most crafty sort of despisers of God who seek to appear shrewd and witty and disparaging scripture, I am confident it would not be difficult for me to silence their clamorous voices. <laughs> right? You know, I, I'm not all that much of a debater, but if I were going against any of these idiots who deny the word of God, I'd crush them. <laughs> That's kind of the modern English version of Calvin. Um, and if it were useful, a useful labor to refute their cavil, I would with no great trouble shatter the boasts they mutter in their lurking places. But even if anyone clears God's sacred word from man's evil speaking, now this is, this is good language here, even if we were to clear up all the arguments against Scripture, he would not at once imprint on their hearts that certainty which piety requires. Right? We talked about it. I, there, genuine piety, genuine Christian faith requires a certain certainty that this is the word of God. An argument can't get me there. Um, since for unbelieving men, religion seems to stand by opinion alone. Right? That's all your friends say. Oh, it's nice. It's just your opinion, though. They, in order not to believe anything foolishly or lightly, both wish and demand rational proof that Moses and the prophets spoke divinely. But I reply, the testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. For as God alone is fit witness of himself in his word, so also the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets, must penetrate our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what had been divinely commanded. Do you feel the weight of that? I think Calvin is exactly right there. Why do I believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Well, ultimately, my answer is because I've been converted. Okay. Now, what's the problem with that as an answer? What? What? It's very subjective. Okay. That's. I mean, that's that's the heart of it. The unbeliever says. Well, why are you so confident in the Word of God? Say, well, my eyes have been opened. <laughs> and, and not only is it subjective, but it comes across as kind of arrogance as well. In, in arguing, perhaps, the deity of Christ, the Jehovah's Witness could come across to me with this exact same argument. For, for yeah. Or, or the, the Mormon, even more particularly, because we're talking about the authority of our holy book, not just our interpretation of it but the very authority of the book. And, and so the question is, uh, why is the Book of Mormon not inspired? Right? Because the Mormon says he feels the burning in his breast. Right? He feels this thing, this... And, and, and you'll, Mormon apologists, Mormon uh, witnesses, you know, if you, um, if you have a Mormon come to your door, one of the arguments they will use is, well, just read it with an open mind, and, and you will be convinced too. Um, so, what I'll say is this. Let's, let's make a distinction here. Uh, I think in the Five Views on Apologetics book, I've mentioned it uh, before, one of the apologists makes a distinction that I think is worth making between knowing something is true and showing that it's true. How do I know that the Bible is the Word of God? I know it because the Spirit has opened my eyes. Is that a useful argument for showing that the, word of, uh, that the Bible is the Word of God? Not so much. 
But I, I think it's part of my answer. When I'm asked, how, why are you so confident that the Bible is the Word of God? Well, okay, if we're, if we're on the Christian worldview, I'm going to give you my answer. Um, you're, you may not find it convincing, but it is part of my answer. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll consider that. And, and again, why do I have to consider that? Well, because as Calvin said, all the evidence in the world can't get me to, to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And, and we'll, we'll look at why uh, as, as we continue here. I will consider Calvin's criticisms of evidential defenses uh, of the canon in my next point. Here I want to consider the necessity of his argument. Calvin, uh, again, didn't want to take the Roman Catholic position. Next. Furthermore, note Calvin's particular attention to what a genuine acceptance of the word really is. Genuine acceptance is equated with that certainty which piety requires. In other words, can you be an unbeliever and accept the word of God as the word of God? Can you accept the Bible as the word of God and be an unbeliever? And the answer is no, because this is, this is the very question I was asking you a few moments ago. What does it mean to accept something as the word of God? It, it means absolute surrender, right? If I say that book is the word of God and I really mean it, I've got no choice but to be a Christian. Right? I can't be an unbeliever. The, the idea that someone says, well, I think the Bible is the word of God, but I'm not sure that Christianity is for me. That position is incoherent. Okay. They, they may mentally assent to the idea that the Bible is the word of God, but their ultimate heart commitment is against that. Okay. It's not a neutral position. Uh, that kind of certainty, the certainty which piety requires, is supernatural. And such supernatural certainty about God's word can only be created by God's own testimony about his word. Paul's rejoicing about the Thessalonians makes this same point. Uh, reception of the word of God as the word of God is essentially synonymous with conversion. And I have the, the quote there from the King James. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effective, effectually worketh in you also the believe. Christian's burden of proof. This is an important point. Rarely considered in the traditional defenses of the canon are the incredible claims we are making about the authority of the Bible. For, for example, consider the following quote. It is possible to defend the accuracy of much of Scripture on purely historical grounds. Do you think that's true? Do you think it's true to defend the accuracy of Scripture on historical grounds? Yes. Okay. I, I believe that you know, when, when the Bible says that Joshua raised Jericho, th that, that there is archaeological evidence for that. You know, I, I believe that what the Bible says is true, and that uh, history bears it out. As the evidential approach to Christian apologetic stresses, <coughs> one can apply widely accepted historical criteria to demonstrate the general trustworthiness of the Gospels. The competing school of thought, known as presuppositionalism, maintains that one must first assume the reliability, then demonstrate that the data form a consistent whole, thereby confirming one's presupposition. Uh, I will frankly say this particular author, who's a fairly well-known evangelical scholar, doesn't understand presuppositionalism at all. He doesn't get it. Okay. Uh, let's uh, skip down there. 
I have little doubt that Blomberg is right in his general claim here. The Bible is a trustworthy historical document, and those without, an, a, without a previous agenda against the reliability of Scripture are likely to agree with that assertion. But there are two obvious problems with this approach as a means for arguing for the authority of the canon. The first is that the unbeliever does have an agenda against the truth of Christianity, right? If you, you said, well, any neutral person would come to this conclusion. We've already determined how many people are neutral. None, right? And neutrality is, in fact, negation, right? I'm kind of ambivalent about God. Well, God doesn't give you that option. If you're going to be ambivalent, you're actually a rebel. Okay? Um, the unbeliever is not unbiased. He is attempting to suppress the truth of God. The fact that the unbeliever is biased against the Christian position does not mean that we have nothing further to say, right? It's not as though we go, oh, you're just biased, I'm leaving. That's not much of an apologetic. At the very least, we are bound to dispel the unbeliever's confidence that his position is somehow neutral, right? I, I don't want the, the guy walking away thinking that neutrality is, is an option. And that the burden of proof is solely on the believer. In other words, he... he so this is, this is what he's saying. I'm Mr. Unbeliever here. I'm neutral in this. I don't have a dog in the, in the fight. I don't, you know, I don't have a horse in this race, whatever analogy you want to use. <coughs> um, um, I, I, so I'm neutral here. You're the Christian. So if, if you think Christianity is true, you have to prove it. You know, I don't have to prove anything. I'm neutral. I'm Switzerland here, right? You, you're the one that's got an agenda. You've got to prove it. And what I want to say is, whoa, 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 hang on a second. You, Mr. Neutral Man, have just as much a position as I do. You have a position. You're, you have an anti-Christian position. Um, and to say that the burden of proof is entirely on me is just really to misrepresent the whole thing, right? Uh, I, I may have a burden to, uh, of proof, but you have a burden as well. Your, take, your non-position is actually a position. Make sense? We want to show the unbeliever that his position, the rejection of Scripture, is, is, uh, based, on, uh, is, is based on the presupposition that his worldview is correct. Bonson elaborates on this theme. Uh, I... Some, some very good thoughts there. I don't have time to read all that. Please read all that. It's good. Um, skipping down. Second, so our first objection, the unbeliever is by unbiased. Second, even if the unbeliever grants the essential historicity of the biblical accounts, because this is where I want to camp, he is completely justified in rejecting the claim that the Bible is itself God's inerrant and authoritative revelation to man. All right, I want to explain this so that you get it, get it and feel the weight. This is a particularly vital theme. I think it's completely overlooked by most apologists. All right, Van Til. In the fourth place, then, the, the Arminian. By Arminian, he really means the evidential apologist. I'm not going to get into that, that right, right now. The evidentialist will speak to the unbeliever about the Bible as the inspired and infallible revelation of God. He will argue that it is the most wonderful book, that it is the bestseller, all other books lose their charm while the Bible does not. Okay, this is, it, these are sort of uh, the sacred character of Scripture arguments. All of these things, the unbeliever may readily grant without doing any violence to his own position and without feeling challenged to obey its voice. 
It means to him merely that some experts in religion have somehow brought to expression some of the deep fellow feeling with reality that they have experienced. Their position, the unbelieving position, allows for sacred books and even for a superior book. But the one thing it does not allow for is an absolutely authoritative book. Let's, uh, let's uh, unpack that a bit. Uh, we'll skip to the next page where we'll pick up. <coughs> if I, if I, well, let's, let's skip to the next page. Um, the, the last big paragraph above point three. However, Van Til's reluctance to pursue evidential defenses of the canon is based on more than a desire for self-consistency. The point hinted at above is this. No amount of evidence acceptable on an unbelieving framework could ever prove that, that, that a particular book is the revelatory and authoritative word of God. Now I want you to look at this. We can prove that a book is completely without error, that it is marvelous and unmatched in its literary quality, that it expresses the depth of human emotion, and that it even contains statements that turn out with astounding accuracy to state events subsequent to its writing, in other words, prophecy. None of these evidences, however, come close to proving conclusively that we're, what we're claiming about the Bible, that it is the divine revelation of God. In other words, if I have a book, could, could I write an, an inerrant book? Is it possible for me to write an inerrant book? Are there things that I know, are there, can I make a true statement? Can I make 50 true statements? Can I write them all in a book? And, and my book be without error? Yeah. I could write an inerrant book, right? I could write an inerrant book. Now, maybe if I'm a really incredible author, I could write an inerrant book that is incredibly moving, right? I could write an inerrant book that is wise. I could write an inerrant book that I... It could happen, right, that I name the next eight presidents of the United States, right? Is that, is that likely? Is it likely that I would name the next eight presidents of the United States? Now, could, could it be done randomly? It could. It's not likely, right? You know, what, what are the odds? Well, billions and billions. Of, but it could happen, right? Just like the design argument, right? You, you feel the design argument popping back up? All of these evidences do not prove. If all of that is true about this book, it doesn't prove to the unbeliever, what we want him to accept, which is what? God said this book. That's a different sort of claim, isn't it? Now, are all of those things consistent with the claim, God said this book? Yes, but none of them, even if it's true and even if I can prove it, will get me to leap to the amazing conclusion that God said this book. Do you see the burden of proof that we have? Right? The, the unbeliever wants to know, how can, I, how can I believe that that's the word of God? And I say, well, look, it doesn't have any errors. And he says, well, I can write a book without any errors. That doesn't show me that that's the word of God. And I say, well, look at the way this book has changed lives. And he says, yeah, like, uh, like uh, Marx's Das Kapital. That's changed lives, too. <laughs> right? Um, and, and, and I don't want to make light of these things, but what I want you to see is that None of those evidences accomplish what we hope that they're going to accomplish. There's a huge chasm that we can't leap by evidence. 
itself. Third, the critical concept of the self-attestation of Scripture. Here's our answer. We have two minutes. <laughs> and at issue in this discussion is the status of ultimate authority. You see how we keep coming back to that over and over again. If the Bible is what it claims to be, the notion of buttressing its authority by means of some other evidence seems not only futile, but self-defeating. In other words, I say the Bible is the ultimate authority, and I'm going to prove it by means of something else, which is now the ultimate authority, and I've undermined my claim. Okay. Um, the ultimate authority for the Bible becomes its own witness about itself. Now, this is different. Uh, the objective witness about is, is what this Van Til calls the self-attestation of the Bible. Um, let me make a quick distinction here. The internal testimony is something I feel on the inside. right? Self-attestation is Paul saying, thus saith the Lord. Is that something I feel on the inside? Well, I may feel it on the inside, but it's written on the page. That's what's important to me right now. How do I know the Bible is the Word of God? Well, it says it is. Now, what's the immediate objection? Well, we'll prove that. We'll say you're going to circle. You know. Yeah, that's a circular argument. Right? That's a circular argument. Um, really good quote from Van Tilder. I'd like to camp on it, but skip to the last page. Say, perhaps the idea of the self-attesting Bible sounds hopelessly circular to you. Ha, look, I anticipated your objection. <laughs> Note, as an aside, that Van Tilder acknowledges the circularity of his position. And, and this is the, the key. All ultimate authority claims are circular. Okay. All ultimate authority claims are circular. Okay. Charge of circularity is answered in three ways. First, if I'm correct in what I've stated, the pursuit of proving the authority and reliability of Scripture on an unbelieving worldview is a fool's errand. You're attempting to do what is logically impossible. In other words, okay, you don't like that I'm arguing in circles. I'm going to say, if you try to do it any other way, you're just going to fail. Okay, that's my first argument. Again, you may not like it, but I, I think that's true. Second, as we have noted above, the unbeliever is just as circular, just as much begging the question as the believer is in utilizing the concept of self-attestation. <coughs> the, the unbeliever's ultimate reference, or the ultimate final authority is his own mind, or whatever else he gives allegiance to. And you're going to find that he's arguing in a circle too. And, and that gets us back to everything we've done in this class, my task then is to go onto his circle and show what? Well, his circle collapses on itself. His circle doesn't provide uh, the ability to know that anything's right or wrong. His, his circle uh, doesn't allow him to make an argument. And so the very fact that he makes an argument is showing that he's actually borrowing from my worldview. Okay, that's the sort of thing we've, done, we've been doing all semester. Finally, most importantly, this approach to the defense of Scripture, showing that, assuming the truth of Christian, uh, the Christian God and his revelation, draws the unbeliever back to the ultimate question, which is not the evidential reliability of the canon, it is the existence and authority of God itself, uh, himself. Let me very, very quickly 
uh, talk about what Van Til said in those those paragraphs. All right, and then I'll let you go. How do I know that the? How can I trust that the Bible is the Word of God? Well, if you if I'm going to answer that question on the unbelieving worldview, okay, let's let's just assume neutrality, and I'm going to prove to you that the Bible is the Word of God. Can I get there? And my answer is no, I can't get there. If, once I assume neutrality, no amount of evidence would prove that this is a book from God. Okay. On the Christian worldview, how do I know that this is the Bible? How do I know that this is God's Word? Well, the big component to my certainty is God in control of history. Is God, is God in control of, of what goes on in, in human history? Is God sovereign? It's a Bible teaching. God is sovereign. Um, the, the, the Bible talks about no man can say to God, what are you doing? No man can stay God's hand. Right? God is sovereign. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The book of Psalms tells us. <clears throat> My prime confidence that the Bible is the word of God is that God is sovereign in history, and he has providentially delivered this book to me. Okay? Now, is that circular? Yeah, that's Christian from beginning to end. But that's, that's where my defense of Christianity is, because I believe that that's reality, right? Can I argue for the truth of Christianity on an unbelieving worldview? Well, that's like saying, how can, how can I prove the truth in a make-believe world? You see that? I can't get there. But if, if, you, if you grant me the Christian worldview, I can be very confident that the Bible is the Word of God. And Van Tilly even says this, and I think this is important. Do we have every perfectly preserved word that every inspired writer wrote in this book? We have the substance of it. Okay? But to say, for instance, with the New Testament, the vast majority of the New Testament, 99 point whatever percent, we know exactly what Paul wrote. But there are some passages that, that are very difficult. We have manuscript evidence, and it's just very difficult to determine. Okay, based on the, the evidence, wh what did Paul really write? Now, the reality is, in, in the vast majority of cases, the difference between them is, is, it has no substantial meaning whatsoever. You know, in this passage it says, and the Lord said, and this passage says, and the Lord Jesus said. And, and, and the reality is, there's no difference in meaning between them. Um... I can be confident that this is the Word of God, even with those difficult and, and sometimes uncertainties if God is in control of history. Does that make sense? Um, it, it, I, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the King James-only controversy, and, and, and those that would say that King James is the only possible Word of God. That position is only necessary if you don't trust God's sovereignty in history. Does that make sense? So, I am confident that the, the Bible is the Word of God <clears throat> because the God who revealed it preserved it. Um, 
that, that is circular. I think these other arguments are useful, right? I think if someone says, someone challenges you about the authenticity of the book of Revelation, I think it's good to read Carson Moon Morris on, on introduction. I think it's good to read these other things. You know, when, when were these books likely written? When, when were they accepted by the church? Um, what, what were the sort of debates? I think those are good discussions to have. It's good to be informed about those things, right? Um, but ultimately, my confidence rests internally on the, the testimony of the Spirit. Externally, um, the Bible says it's the Word of God. And the Bible gives me a coherent storyline that allows me to be convinced that, that the God of this Bible, the God described in this Bible, is the sort of God who preserves his word. Right? And, 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 and there's where my confidence lies. And, and I don't have to rely on church councils on the one hand, and I'm not thrown into a vat of uncertainty on the other hand. Alright? Thank you for coming. And uh, see you for the conclusion. Again, think, think of questions. If anything has been preying on your mind, write them down during the week. You'll forget them. I'll forget You know, I forget everything that I think of during the week as well. So if you, you have something, you, you'd say, hey, this, this would be a relevant discussion. Uh, I, I'd like to have it. Okay? Like I said, I'll come with uh, other material prepared if all of you decide to be bashful.